0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT10. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, On the Media, The Bugle, The Progressive Magazine, and The Young Turks.
1: you know, if you just read the right-wing media, there are two things that you know to be absolutely true, or if you listen to Fox News for that matter, I mean, last night I was channel surfing. You know that Obamacare is failing. The websites are crashing, nobody's showing up, but too many people are showing up, but nobody can get through and, you know, so Obamacare is just an absolute uh, cluster. I mean, it's just an absolute, it's, it's a disaster. And you know that the government shutdowns really no big deal i mean over drudge, they got headlines like nine out of ten irs workers sent home but over one million still on the job you know in fox news it's not a shutdown it's a slowdown you know the president in a government shutdown has a lot of discretion over what continues running and what doesn't and this president president obama has been trying to manage this government shutdown that the republicans provoked as a tantrum against obamacare going into effect He's been trying to manage this in a way that minimizes its damage to the United States of America and Americans. And that's why over at Fox they can say, oh, it doesn't look like a sky fell in. Just imagine for a minute that we had a Republican president. And, you know, Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi had shut down the government. What would that Republican president have done? I think you'd see a clue to that in how Ronald Reagan responded to the professional air traffic controllers organization, PATCO, the air traffic controllers union, going on strike in the first months of his presidency. I mean, Reagan had promised them during the campaign in exchange for their support in his election, and they did support his, they supported him over Jimmy Carter. He promised them that if they would support him, he would support their strike. He got elected, they went on strike, he fired them all. He sent them home. That's it. No more Patco. No more jobs. Period. Obama should take a lesson from this. I mean, Obama, President Obama has been entirely too reasonable. When the Republicans shut down the government because they didn't get their way on Obamacare, when they said that they were going to hold their breath until their faces turned blue because they're unhappy about a law that was passed three years ago, and they shut down the government, the president should have said, "Fine." TSA is being sent home. The only people who can fly are those who are already pre-approved through the TSA pre-program. Otherwise, you're going to have to do it like the Koch brothers do on your own private jet. The pre-program for those of you who don't know, I'm I'm actually I I, Louise and I got got on it because we fly a lot and so what the heck. And you you have to go down to the TSA and you give them your fingerprints and they do a background check on you and they do this whole thing, and you get this uh, global entry card that gets you through customs line faster. And you also uh, get uh, this pre-certification so that um, you go through a, uh, you don't go through the normal you know stand in line with 500 people and get x-rayed. You go through a very short line, and there's no x-ray machines at all. They just have a metal detector that you walk through. In fact, you can keep your shoes on. And it's maybe 1% of travelers right now, from what I'm seeing, at airports that I go through. So everybody else, sorry, can't fly. Because we don't have TSA people to x-ray you. The President should have said that postal delivery, at least in the districts of every Republican member of the House of Representatives, has come to an end. He should have caused some pain. I know that Ronald Reagan would have done that. John McCain would have done that. John Boehner would have done that. It's amazing to me how Democrats are reasonable on these things. I mean, uh, the reason, uh, of course, that the Democrats are reasonable is that the Democrats actually believe that the government that George Washington had three horses shot out from under him to create is something of value. Democrats believe in this America that so many of our citizens have fought and died to preserve over the years. Democrats believe in America. On the other hand, Republicans dismiss America. They believe in billionaires, transnational corporations, and an oligarchy where corporations are persons, don't you know? Corporations are persons, my friend. And billionaires have unlimited free speech to buy any politician they want. This is the belief system of the Republican Party. I mean, here's the problem in a nutshell. And maybe you have uh, be interested to know: you, do, you, do you think I'm crazy here, or you, you know that, that President Obama should have just pushed everybody in this country right to the wall, or should he be doing what he's doing right now, which is doing absolutely everything he possibly can to minimize the damage of this shutdown? The Democrats are facing the same challenge the Native Americans faced when they first confronted the Europeans. If you fight them, you become like them; you lose your own values. On the other hand, if you don't fight them on their own terms, you risk being wiped out. Okay, Geronimo tried that, and it didn't work so well ultimately. There's a certain nobility to President Obama's position. It's pretty much, to use the Native American analogy, it's pretty much the position that the surviving tribes took, which is okay, we're not going to fight you, and we're not going to become you. And we will let you push us around and shove us onto reservations and starve us and keep us in poverty and keep us sick and and not give us access to education and not give us rights of citizenship. But you know, you're gonna let us live, so okay, we'll go along with that. I mean that's essentially what President Obama is saying to to the Republicans. Because the Native Americans were faced with three choices be wiped out immediately, fight back or cooperate and be oppressed. And Obama is faced with those three three same decisions and he has chosen to cooperate to a large extent. I mean they say you know oh he's holding the line right he's standing firm. Well you know by saying he won't sign anything but a clean continuing resolution, that continuing resolution has sequestration in it. It's the, the, the thing that he is saying that the president is saying he's willing to sign, is the number that the republicans put on the table I'd much rather see him kick a little republican ass right I would much rather have him say you know to hell with that and and take your dog with you too you know I mean we're just it's not it ain't going to happen For nine months now, it's been nine months since the Senate passed a budget and sent it over to the House, and and every day for nine months, John Boehner has refused to have a conference committee to discuss between the House budget and the Senate budget budget, any kind of compromise that would lead to a an annual budget, an actual budget for the United States of America. John Boehner has been blocking that process. Right now, John Boehner personally, he's the only guy, is blocking a vote in the House of Representatives on just this continuing resolution that would fund the government for another six weeks. And then we get to do this all over again, right? I mean, just think about that. So why doesn't the president, and for that matter, Harry Reid, who used to be a former boxer, why don't they say, you know, we won the election? More Democrats than Republicans voted for for there were more democratic votes for the house representatives than republicans in the last election. There were more democratic votes for senators. There were more democratic votes for for Obama than than for Romney. We're running the show, guys.
2: Run this.
3: I think that this is very illustrative of what Tim and I were just talking about. This is some sound from Morning Joe. Uh Sam Stein who who's of course been on this program from the Huffington Post is on and he and Bill Kristol's on and they're, you know, they're sitting in Morning Joe and they got their Starbucks coffee out and they're, you know, they're really uh doing some deep analysis uh about about the shutdown. Of course, and uh, and and basically, you know, the the Crystal spin and the Republican spin, and Bill Crystal in that very special way, it's like nothing ever ruffles him. The, the only thing that ever gets his sort of, you know, energy up is when, you know, we need to bomb someone in the Middle East, whether it's Iran, Syria, whatever, who cares? But besides that, he's very much that kind of like seen it all, did it all pundit. Like, eh, government shutdown, it's not such a big deal, eh, healthcare, eh, look – so, what a baby 's malnourished point, hey a baby 's not going to be malnourished anymore. yeah, who cares whatever so that 's his whole thing. government shutdown isn 't a big deal. the sky isn't falling, and i 'm sure it's not falling on him and whatever you know townhouse he has uh lined with uh fantasy books about the middle east uh and and uh video games, but at any rate he 's on and he 's making the case that government shutdowns on a big deal who cares and sam stein responds with some reality and william crystal responds in one of the more morally despicable things i've seen on television recently so we'll play that clip and uh respond to it
0: uh, yeah basically uh i mean i just the idea that this is not the end of the world and that they're funding the three most important agencies i mean it's maybe in your world uh, it's not the end of the world but you know i i've spent the last you know six hours last night just surveying local news stories about this i mean eighty five thousand people are losing nutritional assistance in Arkansas, that's not inside the beltway. That's in Arkansas. Thirteen Head Start programs are closing in Connecticut. That's not inside the beltway. So for these people who are affected by these cuts, it could, it is sort of comparable to the end of the world. And I understand that you know it's great to wait it out and to you know negotiate from a better platform with more power and the debt ceiling and all that. But those two weeks that you waited out are consequential for a whole number of people, not just in the agencies that the Republicans want funded, but many, many agencies beyond that. And I think we tend to lose that perspective when we have these types of conversations. And nope. that's all I wanted to say.
4: Look, I think if there are genuine human emergencies, the Republican House should move to fund those relevant programs. But the just entire federal government, three. I was chief of staff at the Education Department. I had to designate the essential employees when we shut down. And we designated, I joked to Bill Bennett, who was my boss, you know, was, we just designate. Say that no one at the Education Department is essential in all honesty. No, that's not true. And that's too flipped because there are people who depend on education funds. I understand that before I get lectured by Sam. But the truth is there are serious, there are parts that really are. There are parts that are serious that are urgent and parts right. that are not. The Republican House can move on cases of genuine human emergency but a one or two week shutdown is not going to be the end of the world and if, and if you can't go into the Smithsonian... Unless you're for a on food, food
0: Unless you're on nutritional assistance a really It's not going to be the point.
4: end of the world honestly even if you're on nutritional assistance from the federal government you know? There's a really important The state of Arkansas importance. can help out Localities can help out, churches can help out I believe that no one is going to starve in Arkansas
3: Wow That is one of the most Listen to the casual cruelty, the relaxed sociopathy of that comment. That is, I, 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 I'll speak, you know, personally for a moment. Look, when I was young growing up, my family relied on food stamps at different points. My parents had me. They were very young, whatever, you know, irresponsible, supposedly. <laughs> Maybe they were, in fact. But look, <laughs> But look, they had me when they were young. They were working incredibly hard. And, you know, things just didn't work. And at times. And the notion that we were living high on the hog or anything else was just, it's grotesque. And I remember vividly, I remember moments when, uh, you know, look, I'm not going to exaggerate it, but I remember moments of there isn't a full dinner, what's going on? And them saying, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll be fine. Wanting and doing their best to shield me hide their shame hide their fear about their sons well-being about my sister's well-being who was very young uh, you know almost a, almost a baby and, and, and the notion that this isn't affecting everybody is just disgusting and i'm going to read from a story this is a type of local news report that sam stein was talking about that bill crystal obviously has no interest in but this is from ksl uh, a local t- a television affiliate in salt lake city in utah and basically, up to 65,000 Utahns who use special supplement nutri- the special supplement nutrition program for women, infants, and children, more commonly known as WIC, will lose that assist- assistance. And many say they did not see it coming. Mathia Olini, only excuse me, is a Utah mother struggling to make ends meet and counts on WIC to help feed her family, which includes two sets of twins, aged two years and six months. Money's very tight, and we're struggling just to afford diapers right now, she said. Her youngest has medical problems, and they use a special baby formula that costs about $750 a month. That's like a rounding error in Bill Kristol's checkbook, which he's gotten off of warmongering, blocking progress in America, and ensuring people like this woman struggle. She, sti- she typically picks this formula up for free at the WIC office. Quo- and it's back to her. We were supposed to go tomorrow for our appointment and pick up some, pick some up, and they called today and they said they were shutting down due to the government, only said. So this is what's happening every day as a result of this shutdown. And this is what Marsha Blackburn means when people need to learn with less, live with less. They mean... A baby, a child does not get infant formula. And this is what Bill Crystal doesn't even have the time to put in a Google search about because he could care less. And this is why it takes Sam Stein, who does great reporting on this for the Huffington Post, to bring up at Morning Joe because God forbid you ever have somebody on a television program who's ever had to live through anything. God forbid you ever have a representative voice Uh, on a national program to talk about the actual impact of these garbage, grotesque, savage policies that these people advocate on a day-in and day-out basis. And let's be clear, these Republicans are absolutely extreme and they're insane and they're extortionists and they're blocking the government from being funded. But you know, moderate, reasonable people across the political spectrum are on TV every day coming out of green rooms advocating that there be slashes to programs just like this that cause this woman misery, that jeopardize this woman's mother's retirement security if if she's even still there. I mean, forget retirement security, let's be clear, social security, basic dignity, the bare minimum. God forbid they have that. I think listening to that clip shows you that it's not just a question of not being able to reason with people. It's really a profound... unbelievably disturbing lack of empathy and moral development that has taken to the core of american politics and it's disgusting
0: I'm gonna break the fourth wall for a minute and give you some background information. You know, So I've been doing these Squarespace ads. It's pretty simple. I believe in their product and company philosophy. They built this web platform that lets anyone create their own powerful and professional websites really, really easily. And for this month, they wanted me to focus on their suite of commerce services. And I thought, okay, you know, no big deal, I can talk about that. And then they sent over a bullet-pointed list of all their commerce services. And what struck me most wasn't any one of the bullet points, but the sheer number of them so here are just a few highlights sign up is easy first of all you can start receiving payments and moments uh, they support the sale of both physical and digital goods so think about that digital goods can be delivered with customized email links that expire after 24 hours which not only sounds pretty cool but is vaguely reminiscent of like secret agent messages that self-destruct after you read them there's an order management interface to keep track of all your orders manage them all in one place you know maybe an obvious idea but critical to running a smooth operation. They've integrated mailing list support, so you can have customers sign up for your mailing list as they check out. And if you already have an online store using Shopify or Big Cartel, you can import your inventory to Squarespace with just a few clicks. So like I said, these are just a few highlights, and I skipped over a dozen other points that you'll definitely want to check out if you need a place to sell your wares online. So go ahead and give Squarespace a try for 14 days, and you can see all the details yourself. Then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT. 10. That's L E F T and the number 10. And that gets you 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show with your purchase. So again, the offer code is left 10 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com.
5: On November 4th, 1995, the Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, was assassinated. He was killed by a lone gunman as he was leaving a political rally. The Prime Minister was leaving a rally that was held in Tel Aviv. He was heading toward his car, and three shots rang out. Two of them hit him. He was struck in the chest and in the spleen, and a few hours later, at a local hospital, He died. Yitzhak Rabin was murdered by an Israeli extremist who was angry at him for having participated in U.S.-led peace talks a few years earlier. This is Prime Minister Rabin along with President Clinton and the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. After Yitzhak Rabin was murdered, world leaders essentially traveled en masse to Israel for his funeral, and it all happened really, really quickly. The prime minister was killed on November 4th. The funeral was held two days later on November 6th, and the world essentially coalesced for the funeral. The U.S. contingent for that funeral in 1995 was enormous. Uh, It included not only the current serving president, uh, Bill Clinton, who was very close to Yitzhak Rabin, uh, but also former president Jimmy Carter and also former president George H.W. Bush, three presidents traveling together on Air Force One to the funeral. There was also a big congressional delegation that went along, including the then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. And that trip to Israel for the funeral of Yitzhak Rabin in November 1995, that trip, not the events that precipitated it, not the assassination, but the trip itself, specifically the flight, is in part how we got the 1995 shutdown of the federal government, which is the last government shutdown before the one we're in right now. Quote, Gingrich had been invited aboard Air Force One to fly to the funeral. With a budget crisis pending, he expected that President Clinton would take time out during the flight to talk to him about a possible solution. But President Clinton, who seemed to be genuinely grieving over Prime Minister Rabin's death, stayed up front in a cabin with former presidents Jimmy Carter and George Bush on both the outward bound and return trips. Then when the plane landed at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington, Newt Gingrich and Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole said they were asked to deplane by the rear door. So three presidents out the front door, everybody else out the rear door. Uh, Newt Gingrich, a a few days into the 1995 government shutdown, told reporters the story of that snub on the plane as his way of explaining why he had to play such hardball with President Clinton on that year's budget. Quote, I think that's part of why you ended up with us sending down a tougher budget resolution, Mr. Gingrich said. This is petty, and I'm going to say up front it's petty. But I think it's human. Look at this from the Baltimore Sun. Gingrich links stalemate to perceived Clinton snub. As he has done repeatedly since returning home from the Rabin funeral, Mr. Gingrich railed against Mr. Clinton's treatment of him. At a breakfast session with reporters, Mr. Gingrich said he was insulted and appalled that the president had failed to invite Republican leaders to the front of the plane. Mr. Gingrich says, where is their sense of manners? Where is their sense of courtesy? And this was born one of the most famous newspaper front pages of all time. This was the cover of the New York Daily News, three days into the 1995 government shutdown. Crybaby! Newt's tantrum! He closed down the government because Clinton made him sit at back of plane. And this was not something the press made up, Right? This was the Republicans' own explanation of why they had to do what they had to do. Newt Gingrich says he sent the shutdown bill to President Clinton specifically because of the bad manners, because his ego was bruised, because he felt disrespected. Not realizing how bad that sounded to admit until it landed on the cover of the Daily News with him drawn in diapers, Republicans seemed sort of surprised by the backlash. But the the crybaby, hurting the country for no good reason narrative, the fact that they were hurting the country essentially as part of a tantrum over their hurt feelings, that revelation did really help ratchet up the pressure on the Republicans in 1995 and 1996. It ratcheted up the pressure so much, in fact, that they eventually gave in and eventually the government reopened. But you know what? It was not just that one time. And because you've been good this week and because it's been a long week, I'm about to show you something that will crystallize for you. That will remind you in very uncertain terms, very un- very certain terms, uh, why it is that you miss Barney Frank being in Congress. It was five years ago this week when we were in the midst of a different kind of crisis. We were in the midst of a financial catastrophe as a nation. That's when Wall Street was melting down and taking the country with it. This week... 2008. It was five years ago this week when Republicans, in the midst of that crisis, messed something up in the House. One of the most dramatic moments in that entire financial collapse was when Congress, unexpectedly, surprise, voted against a rescue package for Wall Street to try to stop the meltdown. It was at a time when it seemed like Wall Street, indeed the whole financial system, might not be there at all the next morning unless the government took this action. And when Republicans in the House unexpectedly voted down that rescue package, this was the front page of the Daily News. The stock market plunged 777 points. It was the biggest point plunge of all time. And whatever you think of that vote on the merits, part of why it was so consequential at the time is that nobody expected it to fail. Republicans thought they had the votes. They said they had the votes. They thought it was going to pass. Then they put it on the floor and, oops, what happened? This was the explanation they came up with for why they unexpectedly failed, why they could not count their own votes. This is what they said.
6: I do believe that uh, we could have gotten there today uh, had it not been uh, for this partisan speech that the Speaker gave on the floor of the House. I mean, we were, we were, we've put everything we had into getting the votes uh, to get there today. Uh, but uh, the Speaker had to give a partisan voice that, that poisoned. Uh, our conference, uh, caused the number of members that we thought we could get
7: to go south. We did think we had a dozen more votes going to the floor than we had. No more than that, but we thought we had a dozen more. I think, unfortunately, too many of our members were already on the floor when they heard uh, that late speech with the Speaker.
5: See, they, they would have voted to save the United States of America from financial catastrophe. They wanted to. But they found themselves unable to cast those votes because... Somebody else's speech hurt their feelings. They wanted to help the country. They did. They just couldn't anymore because their mellows were seriously harshed. Seriously. And this is why you miss Barney Frank being in Congress.
6: There's a terrible crisis affecting the American economy. We have come together on a bill to alleviate the crisis. And because somebody hurt their feelings, they decide to punish the country. Somebody hurt my feelings, so I will punish the country. I mean, that's hardly plausible, And there were 12 Republican members who were ready to stand up for the economic interests of America, but not if anybody. Insulted them. I'll, make a, I'll make an offer. Give me those 12 people's names, and I will go talk uncharacteristically nicely to them. <laughs> and tell them what wonderful people they are, and maybe they'll now think about the country.
5: And maybe they will now think about the country. Doing something that you know will hurt your country because you feel personally disrespected, because nobody has stroked your ego enough and complimented you enough and said nice enough things to you and let you use the more prestigious plane door. You know, it's, it's just not a good look. It wasn't a good look in 1995, it wasn't a good look in 2008, and it is not a good look now. Behold Indiana Republican Congressman Marlon Stutzman. Marlon Stutzman elected to the House in 2010. Last night, he told the conservative newspaper, The Washington Examiner, why it is so important for Republicans to dig in their heels and keep the federal government closed. Mr. Stutzman?
4: Yeah, we're not going to be, I mean, we're not going to be disrespected. Um, and so that's where we're at today, where we have to get something uh, out of this. And I don't know what that even is.
5: I don't know what that e- Why are we shutting down the government? I don't even know. What would it take for you to allow the government to reopen? I don't even know. I don't even know what that thing is that we need, but it better be something good. We'll come up with something that we want. We just don't want to be disrespected. That's why the government is shut down. When Newt Gingrich indicated back in 1995 that his government shutdown was the result of him being personally disrespected by President Clinton on Air Force One, Democrats and the president pounced.
4: Mr. Speaker, I had a traumatic experience on an airplane Monday. I asked for an aisle seat and they gave me a window. The pilot never came back to say hello.
8: Mr. Speaker, please quit whining.
1: Indicating the Speaker's tantrum is partly to blame for the government train wreck, the president
9: today offered to apologize. If it would get the government open, I'd be glad to tell him I'm
4: sorry.
5: That is what day three of the great government shutdown of 1995 looked like. Here's what day three looked like this time around.
7: Just yesterday, one House Republican said, I'm quoting here, all right, uh, because I want to make sure people understand I didn't make this up. One House Republican said, we're not going to be disrespected. We have to get something out of this. And I don't know what that even is. (laughs) That was a quote. You have already gotten the opportunity to serve the American people. There's no higher honor than that. You've already gotten the opportunity to help businesses like this one, workers like these. So the American people aren't in the mood to give you a goodie bag to go with it. What you get is our intelligence professionals being back on the job. What you get is our medical researchers back on the job. What you get are little kids back into Head Start. What you get are our national parks and monuments open again. What you get is the economy not stalling, but continuing to grow. What you get are workers continuing to be hired. That's what you get. That's what you should be asking for. Take a vote, stop this first, and end this shutdown right now. If you're being disrespected, it's because of that attitude you got. That you deserve to get something for doing your job. Everybody here just does their job. Right? You don't, if you're working here and in the middle of the day you just stopped and said, you know what, I want to get something, but I don't know, I don't know exactly what I'm going to get, but I'm just going to stop working until I get something. And I'm going to shut down the whole plant until I get something. You'd get fired.
5: Right? Democratic leaders in the Senate today said they are willing to offer Congressman Marlon Stutzman and House Republicans, quote, a group hug if it will end this government shutdown once and for all. A few hours later, Congressman Stussman walked back his comments. He said he had carelessly misrepresented the Republican view of this shutdown. Anybody who believes it was a misrepresentation of the Republican view of this shutdown, raise your hand. Anyone? Come on. Anyone?
4: We're not going to be, I mean, we're not going to be disrespected. Um, And so that's where we're at today, where we have to get something uh, out of this. And I don't know what that even is.
9: are bending over backwards not to blame one party or the other for the government shutdown. No, it's a problem of both sides behaving badly, they say. As NBC anchor Brian Williams put it, the Republican-controlled House is passing bills the Democratic-controlled Senate keeps rejecting. On October 2nd, USA Today's Susan Page called the showdown a dramatic demonstration of a dysfunctional capital, where little compromise can be found. While all this may be technically true, it's misleading. The House could hold a vote on a spending bill similar to the Senate bill, which would fund the government without undermining Obamacare. Congressional observers say it would pass if House Speaker John Boehner would allow it to come up for a vote. Problem solved. But Boehner, following the lead of a minority of his own party, is committed to a strategy, shutting down the federal government unless the Senate agrees to gut the health care bill. Well, that's unprecedented. Pointing this out, though, would challenge the media to declare one side more responsible for a crisis than the other, something establishment media are loath to do, preferring to report everyone's behaving badly, as typified by the Washington Post headline, in shutdown blame game, Democrats and Republicans united. It's the other side's fault. There's nothing that promotes political irresponsibility more than the knowledge that whatever you do, the media will blame both sides equally.
5: We had the chance
9: to try to stop it. Instead, we moved to off-limit topics.
10: Now there are things that we cannot take back.
9: So we're waiting for
11: the other one to come.
3: As of Friday, no end in sight, an impasse, gridlock, so with no movement in negotiations to end the government shutdown, much of the press was focused on the unfortunate reality of extremely limited government.
0: For folks coming to New York to see the iconic Statue of Liberty, this may be their last chance. And who knows how long.
11: hundreds of patients, some including children with cancer who want to sign up for clinical trials here can't. Some 18,000 NASA employees will be on furlough, many of them right here in Houston.
3: The whole affair triggered an awful sense of déjà vu, recalling bad news memories of 1995 when House Speaker Newt Gingrich thought it might be a good idea to flex his Republican revolutionary
10: muscle against President Bill Clinton.
4: Neither the president or the speaker nor
10: Senator Dole will give. So tonight, much of the government remains shut down.
11: Speaking of deja vu, in the coverage of the shutdown, much of the media have once again defaulted to a kind of false equivalency, couching the story as if the overarching fact were two polarized parties unable to compromise. But as the Atlantic's James Fallows fulminated this week, all but sending spittle flying from his text, the current fiasco has little to do with bipartisan bullheadedness.
12: Whenever there is a dispute, the journalist casts himself or herself in the role of referee at some kind of sports contest and says, well, of course, both sides are to blame. The problem with this case as it fit into the Procrustean bed of normal journalism is, number one, it was within one party. And number two, it's not really subject to compromise. And here's what, what I mean. As I think anybody around D.C. knows, but most readers or viewers would not be aware, at any moment in the last month or two, this whole problem could have been averted if Speaker John Boehner had simply let the House of Representatives vote On a clean resolution where you simply say we're going to allow the money, the government can stay open, and we'll save for some other time disputes about Obamacare. If this had come to a vote, it would pass. The only reason that's not happening is that the more conservative part of Boehner's Republican majority in the House don't want that to happen. You would not have gathered that from some of the early stories about Republicans and Democrats, extremists of both sides, etc. This is a war within the Republican Party. But there has been coverage, I've seen it, of the fight
11: within the Republican Party. I mean, that's been in our great newspapers.
12: It's been journalism in all of its chaotic glory. One of the reasons I've put so much pressure on the editorialists or the TV commentators who have been saying, oh, let's just pick up the phone and and have uh, Speaker Boehner and President Obama work this out, is that if they were reading their own newspapers, if they were listening to some of their own reporters, they would have understood this is something different.
11: Your big concern is that by falling into the old patterns... There is a profound failure to convey the gravity of the situation, that there is no post-Civil War precedent for what the House GOP is doing right now.
12: Suppose back in 2005, after George W. Bush had been reelected, and uh, when he still held the Senate, it was still in, in Republican hands, let's suppose that in that year, Nancy Pelosi and her Democrats had taken over the House. And suppose that Nancy Pelosi did what the House Republicans are doing now, which is saying the government will not continue its operations, and the debt ceiling might not be raised, leading to all sorts of financial repercussions, unless... All of the tax cuts that were part of George W. Bush's first big achievement, achievement in his first term, were just immediately undone. The extent of the demands and saying that unless we get our way in this point, nothing else can happen, that is new in modern politics. Let's talk about the
11: Washington Post, because that seems to be your perfect case in point. Earlier in the week, in particular an op-ed that you called a thing of wonder, and which included the line, ultimately, the grown-ups in the room will have to do their job, which in a democracy with divided government means compromising for the common good. This, you said, was a tour de force of false equivalency.
12: And it was the more impressive, because it wasn't even some op-ed column by some random person, it was the official editorial statement of, of the newspaper, and it was resolute in its insistence that neither party was being less reasonable, less compromising than the other. It was a matter of just picking up the phone. Remarkably, just three days later, the Post had an entirely different official editorial calling by name on Speaker Boehner, on Eric Cantor, and on Paul Ryan of the Budget Committee, quote, to do their job. That, I thought, was quite an impressive and welcome change from the Post part. And always looking on the positive, I'm thinking that the mighty dreadnought of American journalism is rotating its turrets in the correct direction.
11: <laughs> Do you think it's partly because of the uh, the notion that the press is fundamentally liberal that causes a bending over backwards to deny what is a reality?
12: I am sure that is the case, partly because, as we have discussed and everybody knows, every survey shows that more national reporters vote Democratic than than Republican. That if Nancy Pelosi had been pulling a similar stunt a decade ago against George W. Bush, I know that many of the editorial boards and, and reporters would feel entirely free in saying, look, the Democrats are going crazy here. They're being extreme. They're doing things that are unreasonable. I think so great is sort of the instinctive cringe, about being accused of left-wing bias, that it is harder for analysts and editorialists to say the same thing about Republicans. It's much more comforting for reporters to quote other Republicans saying that. Uh, For example, the Republican congressman who said the Tea Party reminds him of lemmings wearing suicide vests (laughs) than it is to make that observation yourself. Jim, it was a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Brooke, thank you.
11: Jim Fallows is a national correspondent for The Atlantic.
0: I have other things to fill my time You take what is yours and I'll take mine Now let me at the truth which will refresh my broken mind So tie me to a post and block my ears I can see where those
13: top story this week, Anarchy in the USA. And I speak to you from a country, Andy, currently without a government. Andy, here America has become... Part Belgium, part Somalia in the last few days. The entire government has shut down pointlessly, childishly, stupidly and entirely avoidably, leaving the whole country slamming its head into walls in frustration while being justifiably angry with themselves for expecting anything better. There is absolutely no need for this to be happening here right now, Andy, but inexplicably, Congress has decided to do it anyway. And all of this is happening in protest over Obamacare, the healthcare system that was passed by the House, examined by the Supreme Court, and which is now the law of the land. The House has tried to overturn it with 42 separate votes, all of which failed, and now they've shut down the government for refusing to pass a budget which includes funding for it. It is, at best, petulant, and at worst, an act of breathtaking but depressingly precedented quittery. F- so, so now... All non-essential government workers have been furloughed, which means uh, programmes have been shut down left, right and centre. And on the most immediately visual level, some of America's most popular landmarks have shut down. Yellowstone Park, closed. Yosemite National Park, concreted over. Jellystone, doesn't exist. You're thinking of where Yogi Bear lived. Statue of Liberty, has a hood over her head. Grand Canyon, completely filled in. They have filled the whole thing in with sawdust, Andy, just in case anyone tried to take an illegal peek at. It.
14: <laughs> Is it true that uh, if this goes on for another week, the Statue of Liberty will be uh, will have to put on a full niqab?
13: Yes. Yes, that is absolutely. I mean, it could be true, so that basically makes it a fact, Andy. This is, of course, just the tip of an extremely irritating iceberg. Thousands of workers are going without pay, people living paycheck to paycheck are already struggling, Meals on Wheels has cut back, Head Start has frozen, scientific research has been held up, and the lack of empathy from some Conservative pundits has been mind-blowing. Many have been on TV this week claiming that the effects of the shutdown are not that bad, arguing, well, how can it be painful if I personally don't feel anything? And- <laughs> And and no one I'm personally acquainted with also feels anything. Look, if I couldn't do my job as a bloviating talking head for a while, I'd simply fall back on the royalties from my books or do a few more after-dinner speeches. Why can't everyone else do that? Because they're afraid (laughs) of hard work, that's why. And please don't bother me with sob stories. Oh, boo-hoo, museums and national parks are closed. Well, I don't go to those anyway, which proves that we don't need them. Oh, boo-hoo, so a few zoo workers get furloughed. I am not personally a panda, so why should I care? <laughs> and all, so of that, all, that. Of the, all of that, Andy would be true if all government did was spend your money, give your daughter free abortions, and scoop up panda shit. And I'm not saying that it doesn't do all three of those things, Andy, extremely well. They, they, they do them well, but government does other stuff too, like, say, the Centre for Disease Control here, whose staff have been cut by two-thirds now the government has shut down, meaning they'll be completely unable to monitor the beginning of flu season, or as it's otherwise known, now now. Immediately now. And if even the imminent threat of disease doesn't scare conservatives into seeing the innate value of government, Andy, what about something that truly does terrify them, such as Mexicans? Because the government, grinding to a halt, has also shut down e the government system allowing the companies to check the legal status of employees. And when you add that to the Centre for Disease Control closing down, it's not just Mexicans streaming over the border now, Andy, it's Mexicans with the flu, sneezing all <laughs> (laughs) over your plants. And think about what that means. You pick a flower, you give it to your wife, boom, your whole family is dead.
14: (laughs) I've heard also that the uh, entire five and a half thousand mile long border with Canada is now patrolled by one man. (laughs) Yes. When that has to, I mean, America is basically on the brink of collapse. Well, he's got Um, got a pair of binoculars, Andy, he'll be fine. (laughs) So the United States of America is uh, is shit. Sorry, shut. What what is the past tense of shut? <laughs> shit. Shut. Shut it, it. Shut it. Shut. Shut. And uh, the world's self-styled number one nation has essentially voluntarily applied for official global laughing stock status, uh, with an internal budget spat that has basically made the ancient Greeks sit up naked in their graves and admit, well, democracy was a nice idea, but frankly, in practice, it is total shit. And. Um, I guess it just goes to show, John, the uh, ancient saying that you can't spell Tea Party
13: Republican without (laughs) f***ing (laughs) lunatic. It's a pretty bold move from Congress to do something that pisses almost everyone off on this kind of scale for no kind of rational reason. But again, that's hardly surprising. There is no incentive for them to be anything other than awful. Just look at the numbers. Congress currently has a 10% approval rating. Apparently, that is lower than the approval rating for colonoscopies, which actually makes sense, because the more you think about it, both Congress and colonoscopies deal with arseholes, but the American public can at least acknowledge that colonoscopies serve a practical function. Also... Colonoscopies exist to make assholes better, Congress just seems to make them worse. And yet, Andy, and yet, even with this mere 10% approval rating, members of Congress also have a 90% re-election rate. How is that fucking possible, Andy? <laughs> and they're somehow batting 900 while striking out every time they're at bat. That doesn't <laughs> obey the basic laws of mathematics.
14: Harry Reid said, uh, We need to act like adults. Uh, Now, I mean, it does, as you say, American democracy is clearly in a bit of a state, but it's not good when people have to say that. And also, he has to specify which adults it needs to behave like. Do not, for (laughs) example, model yourself on adults such as A. Me, B. Hulk Hogan, which is basically who they seem to have been acting like, or C. Hitler, who was in many ways much naughtier as an adult than he was as a child. Maybe act like teenagers instead. Just ignore the
13: fact that you don't really like each other and just get it on anyway. (laughs) President Obama, just before the shutdown, said that he would not set a precedent where an extremist wing of a party holds a government to ransom. But, you know, here's the thing. That is happening right now, Andy. The only thing he does get to decide is whether to pay the ransom or not. Because the letter from the so-called Suicide Caucus here of 80 Republicans from safe seats that's put us on the path to this mess could not have looked any more like a ransom note if each letter was cut out the pages of magazines. Now, you might think, well, how can 80 congressmen possibly have the power to do something as incredible as this. And it's because they face no consequences. and the absolutely none. The roots of this go so deep. And even though this is absolutely a Republican tantrum that's being thrown here, both sides are responsible for them being able to throw it. Those 80 districts were all won by Republicans with an average margin of victory of 34%. That is unhealthily high. And a shocking amount of America's congressional districts have now become completely uncompetitive. All due to gerrymandering. Strategically redrawing electoral maps every 10 years for political gain. Gerrymandering, of course, is an old English word meaning grouping all of the black people together. Now, This is why congressional maps in America no longer resemble shapes found in nature and instead look like they've been drawn by a baby in the middle of being burped. They're they're drawn. (laughs) They're drawn by whichever part, uh, whichever party controls the statehouse every decade when a new census is available. And historically, Democrats have in fact been more guilty of this than Republicans. This shores up safe seats but also means that any challenges are likely to come from the extreme wing of any party, meaning the Republicans may not have to run against a Democrat at all. as the Democrats may not even bother running a candidate, but they do have to run against a Tea Party maniac, pulling them even further to the right. It just makes you realise that America's democracy is even more deeply f***ed than you previously thought, in more ways than you were even aware of. It's (laughs) awful, Andy. What's happening here is terrible. It seems to have got worse since you weren't there, John. I can't disagree with that, to be honest. (laughs) And the most horrifying part of all of this is that it's about to get so much worse with the debt ceiling negotiations here in a couple of weeks. Because believe me, this budget shutdown is only fiscal foreplay compared to the orgy of incompetence, the sheer brinksmanship bang fest that is going to take place in America in a fortnight. So I guess the question is, John, will common sense
14: prevail? And the answer is obviously no, uh, it's constitutionally not really supposed to. <laughs> and currently the American uh, legislature is working about as harmoniously as a bunch of T-Rexes and a bunch of stegosauruses arguing over who gets first bite of the nice juicy asteroid that appears to be heading their way <laughs> for dinner. And uh, well, it all basically comes down to the eternal dick-jousting contest that is healthcare in America. And there's some, there are some extremely priapic political prongs being sharpened as we speak. And uh, the Republicans are trying to force uh, various compromises to uh, stall Obamacare, including the latest one uh, I read about this morning, John, the right for anyone earning over $300,000 a year to shoot a poor person once a year uh-huh. to compensate for more of them having access to basic life-saving treatments. So maybe that, that is, the, that is the, uh, the one ray of hope. Maybe that will be the compromise that works. So, if this is not solved, how is it all going to pan out? Well, uh, we've run this through the Bugle's X 3000 future simulator, and, well, it doesn't look good for the uh, celebrity nation of 300 plus million and one-time World Cup f- football semi finalist uh, Within a week, UN peacekeepers will have been deployed to the capital. There will be airdrops of emergency food and some basic common sense. Uh, as you say, national parks have been closed, the uh, Grand Canyon, uh, well, first filled with sawdust, and uh, then there'll be a giant infestation of guinea pigs that will have to be dealt with. (laughs) The Pentagon is going to run out of money by next Wednesday, leaving the US vulnerable to a pincer attack by the new Canadian-Mexican alliance. The government hurriedly supplying extra pitchforks to farmers to defend their lands. The disbanded US military will be sold piece by piece to the highest bidder, so expect some high-profile transfers of four-star generals to the Chinese army or the Congolese rebels. Apart from the Air Force, which is going to be made into a Major League Baseball franchise, the Washington (laughs) Wing Wagglers, Mount Rushmore and this is, I mean, this really gets to the heart of it, John. Mount Rushmore under threat with suggestions that Abraham Lincoln's eyebrows are going to be raised. Oh, no. George Washington given a disapproving scowl. T.J. Jefferson's mouth uh, altered to make you look like he's about to say the second F in for fuck's sake. <laughs> and uh, Teddy Roosevelt will be replaced with Lindsay Lohan seductively eating a banana. It is that serious, John. <laughs> That's it. And also, Washington National Zoo will become the de facto seat of government, uh, with a barely discernible difference, but a significant cost-saving.
11: The monkeys stand for honesty, giraffes are insincere, and the elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Orangutans are sceptical of changes in their
13: cages And the zookeeper is very fond of wrong Zebras are reactionaries
11: Antelopes are missionaries Visions locked in secrecy And hamsters turn on frequently What's the a- gas?
2: you have to come and see a zoo People keep wondering when the Republican craziness is going to end and when the shutdown will be over. Well, I think I got the answer. It'll end when the rich people who run the Republican Party tell the Tea Party folks to take a hike. And that day may come soon. Already, the Dow Jones is down 4.7% and the S&P is down 3% from their record highs just a few weeks ago, before Ted Cruz and Michelle Bachmann started all this nonsense. If the stock market goes down by another 5% or so, you can bet that John Boehner will be getting so many calls, his ears will hurt because it's the rich who own the lion's share of the nation's stocks. And the richer you are, the more stocks you own. The top 1% owns 35% of the nation's stocks. The 1% were made whole after the Great Recession, since the market totally recouped its losses, whereas most Americans still haven't come close to recovering from the devaluation or foreclosing on their homes or the loss of their jobs. Face it, people in the top 1% don't like losing money. As Will Durst likes to say, that's why they're in the top 1%. And they also happen to be the very same people who fund Republican political campaigns. They can't be happy right now, and soon they'll make their unhappiness felt. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
6: so the foreign press has been having a ball with our government shutdown uh... we're actually almost the only country in the world who's ever had a federal government shutdown it's a bizarre thing it's hard for uh, the reporters to even explain it to their local populations like what do you mean the government shuts down uh... we're crazy here in the u.s. that happens from time to time obviously it happened seventeen years ago it's happening right now so uh... the reporters are uh... going back to their home countries you know whether it is turkey Japan, Norway, Australia, Spain, South Korea, and the list goes on and on. They're both flummoxed and amused a little bit. I, I can give you dozens of examples, but let me just quote uh, a couple of reporters. One is from Norway. Uh, this is uh, from the Nor- Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. It's to us Norwegians hard to understand that it can be happening in one of the most influential countries in the world, that you could have such a dysfunctional government. It is kind of a joke or disbelief. We laugh about it. How do you like that for American exceptionalism? We're number one, except for the fact that the world is laughing at us. (laughs) Okay, they're not alone. Uh, I was amused by Joyce Karam writing for Al Hayat. Uh, It's an Arabic newspaper based in London, but she's referring to Lebanon here at times. She says, the whole concept is a little surreal for our readers, trying to understand why the number one country in the world cannot pass a budget i come from lebanon and our parliament is very ineffective but ludicrous as it sounds it's better than the u.s congress when it comes to passing budgets many wonder why the u.s is doing this to its economy or why healthcare is not an option for everyone now how's that for funny <laughs> people at lebanon are going they don't have healthcare in america what kind of backwards country is it okay and that's why they shut the government down because they don't want people to have health care I mean, really, if you try to explain it to an outsider, and they're halfway rational, they have to go, "What? They're so mad that people would get healthcare that they've stopped the whole government, the American government that's supposed to teach us about democracy." Unbelievable. So, what's the one country that has had a shutdown before? It's actually Australia. It happened back in 1975, and you know what happened? The Queen came in and fired. Everyone. What? <laughs> well, it turns out now, of course, it's a power that's very seldom used, almost never, but uh, the Queen has the Governor General in Australia, and remember, this is back in 1975, and they actually do have power over Australia's government. They're not like us. We had a total break. America had a total break from uh, Great Britain, but Australia did not. So the Governor General came in and first said, Oh, Prime Minister, can I speak to you for a second? God fired! Okay. And then there was a new prime minister. They passed the budget and the government started functioning again. And then literally 3 hours later, the Governor General says to the parliament, "Can I see you guys in my office for saying God, you're all fired immediately. And we'll be having elections uh set uh, right away as well." And when he did his final proclamation firing everybody, he ended it with God save the Queen. <laughs> it's the only time we might slightly regret not having a queen.
10: Hey Jay, this is Jim Wilmot. I love the show. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, by the way. just want to let you know that I love your show normally, but this latest issue about um, GMO foods, talking about our diets and so on, was totally one-sided. There, I mean, I thought Sam Sater did a terrible job of analysis of the interview of a 14-year-old GMO activist. He supposedly smacked... Smack down a shark tank uh, guy, entrepreneur. You know, it it wasn't a smack down. They were trying to have a conversation. I thought the interviewer was polite to the young girl. And, and the uh, Sam Cedars tried to make it out that he was bullying this young girl. He wasn't. He was asking her pointed questions. A lot of the research that GMO activists are using is bogus research. I'm not saying that there are concerns about GMO foods, but it it is a very serious issue with vitamin A in in third world. And if there's a way to increase vitamin A through a genetic manipulation of a DNA protein in rice, I don't see a huge problem with that. Yes, there should be more human studies, but at the same time there is no credible evidence that dna that gmo foods are causing us problems so um, i just was disappointed with that segment uh, in that last show thank you very much bye-bye
8: hi jay this is amanda from chicago i just had to call in in horror at your gmo labeling message The science is in on this one, science denier. GMOs are simply life, just like any other life. And our bodies process them just as we process any other form of life. Think about what GMO stands for. Genetically Modified Organism. You're asking for a legal precedent for labeling certain forms of life as opposed to other forms of life based entirely on their method of conception. Genetic modification is simply a means of conception. A genetically modified organism, just like a baby made in an IVF petri dish, is a life. Think about potential future consequences for legislation like this. I know GMO science-denying people are trying to stem what they see as the tides of some futurist dystopia where children are made in factories, but guess what? That future is here! How do we respond? Do we respond with fear? Do we slap a label on children that we fear might taint our natural children? Do we make it illegal for natural children to marry GMO children? GMOs have been with us for a long time. The lab-based form of genetic modification that springs to everyone's minds at the politicized term GMO is simply a more efficient way of doing the exact same thing we've been doing for thousands of years. Peonies didn't naturally spring from the soil any more than my poodle naturally sprang from wolves. An IVF baby from whom a doctor has removed the gene for Tay-Sachs disease is a GMO. Natural does not mean superior. Any more than GMO should mean that it's different from any natural life. Genetic modification is as much a result of sexual reproduction as it is of a scientist's needle. And then, I I mean, I know that that people are worried about the dangers of playing God, but God himself was a pretty dangerous scientist! Hemlock, poison ivy, poison oak, castor beans, mistletoe, elderberry, all 100% completely natural and all extremely dangerous to humans. We should legislate against farming and selling poisonous plants or plants that will damage local environments. We should not legislate labeling the ways those plants and animals were conceived and born. Is that to say that there are no abuses, no dangerous practices in corporate mega-farming? Of course not. But we should seek out and prosecute abuses. We should not label the forms of life. Again, And I've heard the argument that we should proceed with a guilty until proven innocent with GMOs. But that really seems like a giant distraction from what you really want to seek out, which is foods and substances that are dangerous for human consumption. And those dangerous substances can occur naturally. Just as easily as they can occur in a petri dish. The entire GMO debate is a giant confusion of the issue, and people are throwing around fearful labels for labeling types of life. That is not okay.
0: Thanks for listening, number one. thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, just to clarify, erase all question on this issue, I am not an expert on food in general or GMOs in particular, and because I've you know, i never worked in the field and it gets talked about so rarely and i i have the opportunity to make shows about it so rarely that there's a lot about it that i sort of learn and then forget because it's not continually reinforced so i'm noticing this pattern that you know every time i have to sort of relearn what the foundational issue of gmos is the the, the argument that makes the most sense to me as to why there should be concern about them and uh so the, you know as we heard in the callers today that you know it's All the science says it's perfectly healthy for humans to ingest uh, genetically modified food. And what we need to understand is that is not the only question here. Whether or not it's healthy for humans to ingest genetically modified food is not the only question. It's not about denying or supporting the science behind that question. It's about realizing that there are more questions here that the pro-GMO side isn't addressing at all. So contrary to how I know almost nothing about food, Jim Hightower, who's a you know regular commenter on the show, uh, who was also the Texas Agriculture Commissioner for 8 years, uh, he is is very much in, in favor of being wary of GMO foods, labeling them for the sake of you know sort of bringing this issue to the public and so on. So I found this this article that sort of summarizes The the fundamental argument that has nothing to do, I'm going to read from it, notice that whether or not GMO foods are healthy for humans to ingest is nowhere near the central thesis of the article. So uh, this is from 2012. It's called Monsanto, Dow, and Genetically Modified Trouble. And so in reference to Dow Chemical, the company, he says... The chemical giant is in line to gain approval for putting a genetically altered corn seed on the market that will produce corn plants that won't die when doused with high levels of 2,4-D. This potent pesticide is an ingredient in Dow's notorious Agent Orange defoliant, which did such extensive and horrific damage to soldiers and civilians in the Vietnam War. However, the corporation and the feds claim that 2,4-D was not the deadliest ingredient of the killer defoliant and has not yet been proven to cause cancer in humans. So their pressing ahead to let this corporate constructed seed be planted across America. Dow now sells 2,4-D to help kill various weeds, but the herbicide is so strong that it also kills nature's own version of corn plants. Thus, Dow's genetic engineers went into the corporate lab and manufactured a new corn that's immune to the weed killer. This would let the chemical maker profit from selling the patented seed, plus enjoying a huge increase in sales of its 2,4-D herbicide. Happy day for Dow, not so happy though for consumers worried about the untested long-term health consequences of the altered corn and the carcinogenic possibilities of ingesting more 2,4-D. Also, when sprayed, this herbicide can vaporize and spread for miles, killing crops that are not immune, poisoning the surrounding environment, and endangering the health of farmers and townspeople throughout the area. Dow is hardly alone in pursuing its happiness at the expense of others. Indeed, rather than finding ways to cooperate with the natural world, America's agribusiness giants generally reach for the quick, high-tech fix in a futile effort to overpower nature. Their attitude is that if brute force isn't working, they're probably not using enough of it. Monsanto, for example, has banked a fortune by selling a corn seed that is genetically manipulated to produce corn plants that won't die when sprayed with a toxic weed killer called Roundup. Not coincidentally, Monsanto also happens to be the maker of Roundup, so it has profited from the seed and from the surge in Roundup sales that the seed generated. Slick. But Mother Nature, damn her, has rebelled. So much of Monsanto's poison was spread across America in the past decade that weeds naturally and rather rapidly developed a resistance to it. As a Dow Chemical agronomist put it, the real need here is to diversify our weed management systems. Exactly right. We need non chemical, non GMO sustainable systems that work with nature. But no, the Dow man didn't mean that at all. He was calling for more brute force in the form of his corporation's altered corn seed, the one that can withstand being doused with Dow's super potent 2,4 D weed killer. Use this, he promises, and this time nature will surely be defeated. Wrong. Nature doesn't quit. The weeds will keep evolving and will adapt to Dow's high-tech fix too. By pushing the same old thing relentlessly, says an independent crop scientist, agribusiness interests, quote, ratchet up America's dependence on the use of herbicides, which is very much a treadmill, unquote. So, that is that's the argument that makes the most sense to me. So rice with extra vitamin A added to support the health of hungry people in Asia sounds like a great thing that I don't instinctually have a problem with. Obviously, not all GMOs are created equal, and I don't have an equal problem with them. And it's absolutely not about whether the food itself is good or bad for people to ingest. There's far more to it as described in this article. And I'm very much open to the idea that GMO labeling is an overly heavy-handed approach when what we need is a lighter touch, but still an effective bit of public policy that stops bad agricultural practices if they are, in fact, bad, as Jim Hightower is arguing in, in this article I just read. And, you know, I mean, it reminds me of the mortgage industry. People have no idea how you know, how a bank handles a mortgage, what they do with it after the papers are signed. Similarly, people have no idea. They're completely disconnected from where their food comes from and how it's produced. And it's sort of in a similar, similar way, if you allow corporations to pursue practices that are enormously profitable for them in the short term, but completely short-sighted and potentially disastrous for the rest of us over the long term, then this should sound really familiar to you. And the only way to change public policy is to make people aware of the fact that there is a problem in the system. And that's what GMO labeling is all about. If there's a better idea, I would very much want to hear what that idea is and then to pursue that idea. GMO labeling just happens to be the best thing we have to work with at the moment. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com/slash best of the left. It's an incredibly easy way to help spread the word of the show. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted it in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
5: And it's a crying shame how we get so trained. We can't see past sad stories and wonder why. We can't see past our
13: own sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our own sad stories and
5: one